Okay, I'll start with a joke. One of my favorite comedians is Brian Regan. And one of my favorite Brian Regan shows is the show called I Walked on the Moon. And it's named for the very last joke of the special. That's the, that's the, Israel, that's where you're at. Israel, that's the episode when you were having that terrible breathing episode where you couldn't breathe and we were in the ER and he was joking about the emergency room. And so we were in the emergency room and I was watch, we were watching Brian Regan and Brian Regan was making Israel laugh and he was like, oh, you gotta stop showing me him because oh, I can't breathe. And I was like, yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't die watching Brian Regan. But at the, here's the joke from the one that I, that I was thinking of for this morning. He was at a dinner party and he's actually really introverted. So when he's out in public, he's real quiet. He ventured out. He said, this one guy was just telling stories. Well, I drove on the Autobahn. I was driving this. You know, the first time you land at this island, the runway's really narrow. You know, I know this guy. He works at the Pentagon and just full of himself and one-upping anyone else and taking up all the oxygen in the room and just being completely annoying. You know, me, me, me. Oh yeah, that's nothing. Me, me, right? So Brian Brian Regan told a little story and the guy goes, oh, that's nothing. (laughs) And he's like, that's nothing? And he was standing there and he was thinking, just wouldn't it be amazing to be one of those astronauts, one of the 12 humans on planet Earth that actually walked, that actually visited the moon or one of the few that walked on the moon? Wouldn't that just be amazing so that you could just listen, this guy's at this dinner party going, oh yeah, you know, and I know so-and-so and you Bill Gates and blah, 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 blah. You know, me and this guy were playing golf, you know, with the president and blah, blah, blah. And then you could just be eating your hors d'oeuvres and say, I walked on the moon. And the room goes silent and he goes, funny that you should mention driving on the Autobahn because when I was driving in the sea of tranquility in the lunar rover, I began to think maybe I was driving too fast, but then I remembered (laughs) there's no one else on the moon. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Before we get to Colossians, I'll just tell you why this is on the board. On Wednesday, one of the things we, we talked about was the importance of being intentional and disciplined in our walk with Jesus, the importance of actually showing up, right? Our spirit, the moment we say our big yes to Jesus, our spirit is perfectly made righteous. We're 100% forgiven. We're 100% turned from being God's enemies into being God's kids. And everything is set right. Legally, we are adopted, But there's a big difference between being legally adopted and actually adjusting our hearts, our souls, our minds, our wills, our emotions to the reality of being adopted, right? We've heard the stories of it's late at night, uh, it's three in the morning, and, and your adopted child is down there carefully getting food to hide in the bedroom because even though now they're your child and they have everything they need, there's still a mindset of, I have to, I have to keep my own for me because everyone will take my stuff. And it just takes a while, right? Like we've been saying for a long time, it's easier for God to get the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt than it is for God to get the slavery out of the Israelites. All right, there's a process of the mind being renewed, the soul being healed. And in this process, it's extremely important that we diligently go after the means of grace. The means of grace. That God's commanded his blessing to dwell in certain activities, certain locations, certain relationships. 
that if all we ever do is pray a prayer to go to heaven, but we don't apply ourselves to daily be formed by this grace, drink this grace, develop our relationship with God, then we could end up having prayed a prayer to get to heaven, but look exactly like the man who doesn't believe in God, bearing no fruit and washing out when the trials of our life hit and, and we just don't have a real foundation, right? There's such a thing as false conversions is the other thing to, to be concerned about. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not pray in your name, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. You evildoers, get away from me. Only the ones who do the will of the Father in heaven. So the question is, now that we've been saved by grace, how do we let grace transform us, right? So we were kind of just looking at Hebrews 5.11, which talks about, though by this time, you should be teachers. That's an interesting expression, isn't it? Though by this time, you should be teachers. You need someone else to start over and teach you basics because, the goal, the, because what was supposed to happen didn't happen. You were supposed to be hungry and thirsty and diligent and through constant use, train yourself to grow up in godliness, that the grace that's saved you is supposed to then change you and form you and shape you, which requires discipline, hunger, and training. So here was a quote you know, from, from Wednesday night where I said, uh, one day I was asking God, does he prefer? I said, Father, do you prefer my passion or my discipline? In other words, do you prefer, which one do you like more? Do you like when my heart is just like, yes, God, or when I choose you even when I don't feel like it? Which one of those is more attractive to you, God? And he said, instantly he said, Tim, I always prefer your passion over your discipline but it will require discipline to maintain your passion. The purpose of the means of grace or the spiritual disciplines is to show up and drink the grace that's here to change us and transform us. That the, the Christian life is not just a life of going to heaven when you die because a legal change has happened. That's a part of the gospel, but that's not the whole gospel. The Christian life is also about being relationally reconciled to a God with whom we know and, and transformed by the, by the grace of the indwelling Christ himself. So what I was saying was there's 800,000 words in the whole Bible, 184,600 words in the New Testament. And if you're a relatively slow reader, let's say you read 200 words a minute, Let's say you read the Bible 30 minutes a day. That's 6,000 words. That means you could read through the whole Bible in 4.3 months or 133 days. So if you've been saved a year, you should have read through the whole Bible by now. It takes me about three to read through it because I read slow on purpose and I read through the New Testament three times for about three or four times for every time I read through the Old Testament because my goal is to that, my goal is that the authors of the New Testament's interpretation of the Old Testament is my interpretation. So I try to dominate myself with a Christ-centered perspective as much as I possibly can. And you could read through the whole New Testament in 31 days if you read a half hour a day. In 2020, the average American uh, was on social media three hours a day. That means average, <laughs> which means some didn't do it at all and others did it six hours a day to even that out, right? Huh? Okay, anyone? And if you were to read the Bible three hours a day instead, and by the way, this is influence. This is all influence. This is worldview. This is, this is data. This is, this is what you're setting your mind on that's shaping your internal world. Your life is a byproduct of your internal world, correct? 
What you focus on becomes what is in your, in, becomes your internal world, and then you live from your internal world. When you start the Christian life, following Jesus feels unnatural, even left-handed and awkward. And some Christians don't even think it's possible to follow Jesus. They think the only thing that's possible is to be saved from the punishments later by Jesus. They don't even think it's possible to follow Jesus because they have actually placed more faith in the fall of man than in the resurrection and power of Jesus. They have more faith in sin than in the grace of God. But actually, once we've been shaped and trained by Jesus, when we've been fully formed, obeying Jesus becomes natural. And sin starts to feel awkward. Okay, so that's three hours average of America in 2020. Three hours of being influenced, shaped by, reacting to, emotionally uh, affected by stuff that, that is probably not God. And let's say even if it is, let's say even if, if some of the, I, I need a drink. Somebody want to, oh, thank you so much. Let's say even some of that is God. Let's say some of that is, you know, a couple Christian thoughts here, one snippet, one droplet of scripture, just a little drop, a single paragraph, one little thought that you scroll, oh, I like, I agree with that. And you click yes, and then you move on with your life or you share it and move on with your day. That's still secondhand intimacy. That's not you with your Bible and your Holy Spirit and your Lord hearing his voice, his word to you in your circumstance where you are to fight the fight you're actually in. Are you with me? So, like, you know, oh boy. Lord will probably make me write a devotional book here before I'm dead just because of this thing that I think and that I say sometimes, which is, I don't understand why you would read a devotional book instead of reading your Bible. But anyway, moving on. If you were to read your Bible three hours a day, that means you could get through the whole New Testament once a week, actually in 5.1 days. That's at 200 words a minute. And you could read through the whole Bible once a month in 22.2 days. As soon as I say that, you go, yeah, but when I read the Bible, I don't read it the same way I read other books. When I read other books, I go, page, turn the page, turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. Ooh, thank you. But when I read the Bible, I read like slowly, one sentence, carefully, grammatically, and I pay close attention to the details, and I slow down, and I circle things, and I write things, and I go, oof, and I back up, and I ask questions, and I pace, and I pray, and I talk out loud to God, and he and I have a conversation, and I can only get through about one chapter a day, and that takes about an hour. And I go, well, good for you. That's, that's actually awesome. That's what it is about. Because it's not about how much Bible you get in you. It's about how much, I'm sorry, it's not about how much Bible you get through. It's about how much Bible gets in you and through you. Because the whole Christian vision is not truth as a set of ideas on a page that you agree with. That's not belief. I'm sorry. That's not faith. That's just beliefs. Words on a page that you agree with is just doctrine. We need doctrine, but doctrine's not enough, and the Bible doesn't even recognize that as being faith. Who's, who's understand what I'm throwing down here? Agreeing with a set of ideas, the Bible doesn't call that faith. That's just beliefs. The devil has beliefs. It doesn't benefit him at all. The only kind of truth that the Bible recognizes as real truth is embodied truth, truth that you've staked your life on. You know what you really believe because it's what you're living. It's not what you say you believe. It's not what you say you think. It's what you are. It's what, because faith is an act of surrender. Faith is staking your whole life on Jesus. 
Faith is actually leaping out over the unknown and sacrificing everything to depend on him instead. Right? So it's not faith if it isn't radical surrender. It's not. It's just not. It's not faith if it's not embodied and you don't believe it unless you're living it. You just don't. I just don't. Right? So, yeah, the New Testament doesn't even recognize truth as being just an idea or words on a page or rational thought. Truth is a life. Okay? Are we good? All right, so now let's get to Colossians. Somebody want to erase the board behind me while I'm, while I'm doing this? I need more hands. Thank you. Why am I nervous? You, you people like me. What am I nervous about? It's so weird. I get so nervous when I lead worship. Every time my hands get cold. So, like, what's the purpose of that? Say that again. Well, I certainly uh, uh, have plenty of reasons to be humble. <laughs> when, I, when I started out pastoring, I was afraid somebody would give me a compliment and I would get puffed up with pride. It only took a couple of months before I created a folder in my email called encouragement. Instead, it was like, nah, nah. I don't think pride's gonna be the danger. I think quitting is gonna be the danger and hating myself because I agree with my critics is gonna be the danger. Anyway, moving on. Colossians chapter three. If, so if you have been raised with Christ, okay, let's just correct the NRSV. In the Greek, it, it, I'm gonna render the same Greek word that could be rendered if as since, Okay. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, verse two of Colossians three, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm just going to read the next paragraph as well, really quickly, because it's built on this one. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idol worship, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now, but now, you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. And do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old man with his practices and have clothed yourselves with the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. And in this renewal, there's no longer Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Okay, amen. So we're gonna spend a few weeks at least on that big chunk, but I wanted you to see context that Paul's saying, you've been raised, therefore, 
Since that's the truth, that means you got to live a certain way. You got to think a certain way. You've died. Therefore, because that's the truth, you need to line up with that and put to death the stuff that's in your life that belongs to that old life that's already dead. So, so there's this tension in Paul between what Christ has done for you and in you and what you're called to do to allow Christ to live through you now as a response. And, and notice, the, the, notice the past, present, and future in this text. In the past, Jesus died and you died. In the past, Jesus was raised and you were raised with him. So you didn't kill yourself. You died with Christ, right? I say this all the time. He died for you, but he didn't die instead of you. He died as you. You died. He was raised for you, but he wasn't raised instead of you. He was raised as you. You were raised in him. So that's in the past. So now what's in the present? Oh, he's hidden from view. You can't see Jesus right now, can you? But you know where he is. He's in the true temple in heaven. He's the true priest and the true lamb. He's the priest who offered himself once for all. Now he's in the true holy of holies at the right hand of the father making intercession for us. And that doesn't mean he's praying for us. It just means his very presence there is representing us. And he still has the wounds that say, Father, forgive. And none of that was changed. None of that changed the father. He didn't, he didn't, God didn't, Jesus didn't save us from God. God saved us from sin and death through Jesus. The word that's so often used in the New Testament, hilasterion in the Greek, it's a, it's a, it's a mercy seat. It's used in pagan literature to talk about how we appease the gods. We bring the gods an offering. The gods may be angry. The gods may be sending us drought. The gods may be sending us famine. The gods may be sending us a plague. So we throw a couple of virgins in a volcano or we kill our children. We offer them to Molech and maybe then. Guys, we don't do that, do we? No, we don't. Maybe then the angry gods will stop being angry at us. So this, this thing of our sacrifices, humans going to the gods to try to get the gods to be favorable to us is the opposite of what we find in the gospel. We don't bring Jesus to the father. The father sends Jesus to us when we are his enemies, when we want nothing to do with him, when we are against him, when we hate him. He's in hot, the father is in hot pursuit of us. Jesus doesn't save us from the father. The father saves us from sin and death. He's in hot pursuit of us. So there's like three aspects, I think. And, and, and okay, just say what you came to say and slow down, Tim. So the, the gospel that I used to believe only dealt with guilt. And, and it, says that it, it, it says that Jesus saves us from the Father that God has given us these laws. His laws are his will. And if we break his laws, then we make him extremely angry and he becomes our enemy. Notice it doesn't say we become his enemy. It's focused on how we make God our enemy. And then God's so honked off that he has to make someone pay because he's, he's the kind of God who, in order to be just, he's got to murder someone to accept and forgive us. I used to believe that. Now I believe that the primary sense in which God gives the law 
is not so much to describe what we owe him, but to describe how life works. All right, so there's an organic understanding of how sin works, and then there's more of a legal understanding of how sin works and, and what the law is for. The, the, the legal understanding of the law is if you break it, you pay a fine, right? Uh, the organic understanding is, is the law. If you break the, the, there's consequences, right? So take speeding, for example. If there's a law that says don't speed, a legal understanding of God's law and, and, and sin, or I'm just using it as a metaphor, would say, oh, if you, if you speed, you're going to have to pay a fine. But the organic understanding is that the law exists because speeding is dangerous. And if you speed around a sharp corner, you'll fly off and kill yourself and maybe someone else. So, so for example, Romans chapter 1, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it, made it plain to them. For although they knew the truth, they neither... They neither Love the truth. They didn't glorify God as God or give thanks to him, but instead they rejected him and, and their foolish minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Let me summarize. The wrath of God is when we reject God, he says, may your will be done then. The wrath of God is, is in hand, is, is in, he's act, God in his grace is always actively restraining human sin, isn't he? His wrath is when he stops restraining sin and we start to experience in ourselves, it says, men and women inflamed with lust for each other instead of, uh, instead of a cross-gender cross attraction. One of the first consequences of perversion, of, of falling away from the Lord in a, in a society, is same-sex attraction starts to replace opposite-sex attraction. And then it says, men received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. That's fascinating, isn't it? The wrath of God is, is us experiencing the consequences of our sins. In the garden, we, we were connected into the Father. But once we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the image of the devil began to be formed in us. And, and we actively exercised and used our authority, which was meant to rule over the earth as God's co-delegated under authorities. Instead, we, by our participation, became a part of the demonic kingdom. Matthew 25, Jesus says, in the sheep and the goats, that the goats, he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He says, you're going to depart. Go into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, God didn't create hell for sinners. He, crea he created it, or maybe I'll put it another way. He didn't create hell for people. He created it for the devil and his angels. And the only people who go there don't go there because of God and his anger. They go there because of their organ the organic connection between sin and death. Sin is a living entity. This is the old, the, the gospel that I used to believe had some truth to it because it, it dealt with my guilt in the sight of God. Right? You're guilty. You broke the law. You pay the fine. It didn't deal with, what about me getting out from the power of sin? Sin is a living entity. 
God in Genesis 5 to Cain, he says, Cain, he comes to him before Cain kills Abel and he says, Cain, sin, listen to this, desires to have you. It's crouching at the door. It's like a, it's like a lion. It's crouching at the door. Sin is a living entity. It's a power. You are a temple. You're made to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. But when you're cut off from the source, you're not empty. You're filled with something else. Bob Dylan said, everyone's got to be a slave to to something, right? Whose slave are you? Right? Romans 7.20, slave to sin. Under the law, slave to sin. It's not I who does it, says Paul in Romans 7.20. It's sin living in me. Or Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ living in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how will God save us from sin and death? Sin and death is a living entity. That's the problem the gospel is solving. He made you and I to be his kids, but we've been taken captive. We've been taken captive and we now belong to a kingdom that's in rebellion against him. And we become his enemies. And while we were his enemies, he says, I'm going to deal with this whole problem. Not just the guilt. I'm going to deal with the power. I'm going to break the power of sin in the cross. You guys understand that? That's what Jesus did in the cross. He did not just pay for your guilt. He broke the power of sin in the cross. And in his resurrection, because, you know, sin and death are the same thing. Sin is, is death in seed form. When sin is full grown, it becomes death. Are you with me? It's right out of James. It's right in, in, in Romans. The wages of sin is death. Why? Because God's really mad? No, because that's how it works. That's how it works. It's about the kind of creature you're becoming. You, Romans 1, you become like what you worship. You either worship and serve the, the, the creator and, and you take on the, Peter, you become participants in the divine nature. You have the life of God in your soul so that when you come and you stand before Jesus, it's like you pass through a fire and the flames will reveal the reality of what you've done in life. He won't have to say what he thinks. The fire will reveal what kind of a creature you and I have become all the way down to the motive level. So he deals in this gospel. In the past, Jesus was died. He died and he was raised to deal with, to deal with all of this because, okay, the guilt of sin. Yes. What about the power? And then what about this? This one's big. The whole book of Hebrews is about this one. The book of Hebrews is all about this one. The problem is we, even if he forgives us, we pull away. By the way, this is Genesis 3, isn't it? God, God doesn't show up ready to kill. He doesn't show up with guns. He doesn't show up with a sermon about with anger and judgment. He shows up with, with, animal, with animal skins. 
He shows up and says, oh my word, you guys are hiding from me. He shows up on schedule. God's not the one that sin changed. It changed us. Sin didn't cause God to flee from our presence. He showed up on schedule. The one who has every right to be honked off and furious and throw you out of his presence is the one in hot pursuit of you. The judge of all the earth is the least judgmental person I've ever met. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. And you know what he said? I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And again, he's the perfect image of the father. The father didn't turn his face away from Jesus. The father didn't pour out his wrath on Jesus. The father told me last week that he suffered even more than Jesus. And I said, oh my goodness, is this, I thought, oh Lord, is this really, is this really, is this, is this, is this orthodox? The father told me he suffered more than Jesus when his son was on the cross. It hurt him more than it hurt his son to see Jesus do what he knew must be done to rescue us. That's the, so then in Romans 8, then the father started giving me verses to back up what he was saying. Jesus says of the cross, the world must learn that I love the father. So, so the, the meaning of the cross is the father loves you. And the meaning of the cross is that's how much Jesus loves the father. If the father says, are you willing? What, what, to what length, son, are you willing to go to rescue your brothers and sisters from sin and death? How far are you willing to go? How deep is your love? And the father, his love is so deep, he's willing to allow Satan, sin, and death, empowering religious and political leaders to do their very worst to Jesus. And by the way, there have been great theologians in the history of the church who've been puzzling over the mystery, and the cross is a mystery, who've been puzzling over the mystery of the cross ever since. The theologians all agree Jesus had to die to save us, but they disagree over what it did and how it works. And I'm not standing here telling you that I know for a fact how it works. I'm standing here telling you that my ideas about how it works have changed over the last while. And as a consequence, the Father has looked much better to me. Because the old version of the, of the gospel that I believed, it was a God who is so angry, he has to kill someone before he's willing to forgive. In fact, he kills the most innocent person in all human history. What's the greatest sin in all human, human history? The only innocent person who's ever lived is Jesus. He's the most pure, the most righteous, the most loving, the most faithful, the most meek, the most humble, the most brave. He's the best humanity's ever seen. And he was murdered. He was flogged. They put a crown of thorns on his head when he deserved a proper crown. They put robes of purple on him in order to mock him. They beat him with rods and they said, they blindfolded him and then they smacked him with sticks across the head and they said, prophesy Christ, who hit you? When I, when I watched the passion of the, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, I could only watch it one time and I've never watched it again and I don't want to watch it ever again. I can't handle it either, Bunny. I remember reading Luke's gospel when I was a brand new Christian. And I remember... I was just getting to know Jesus. I knew God, like I knew God in experience. You know what I mean? I, like I encountered the, the, 
the transcendent one you can't put within your mind, the limitless one that you, if you can think it, it's not God, right? The second commandment, have no graven images. Why? Because anything you make can't be God. Like the essence of idols is you made it. You've got to prop it up. You've got to put it on a pole, but also intellectually and in culture. It's an idol if, if people will only believe in it through you being really good at arguing with them about it. Because there's not power in it. It's not reality. It's not a God who's real, who can fight his own battles and save us. We have to save him from people. But so I met the real God in the mountains on drugs. Don't do drugs, kids. And I always am embarrassed about that detail because I feel like it takes away from the validity of my testimony. So I don't quite know what to do with it. But I met the real God. And then, now that I knew the real God, I became interested in trying to understand the person of Jesus. Because I I became convinced that the God that I came to encounter, not believe in through rational argument, though rational arguments were involved, but the God that I'd come to know, I, I became convinced he was known in Jesus. So I studied Jesus. I read Matthew. Matthew was like really the first book of the Bible I read as a young believer. And it was like, oh my word, this Jesus guy, he's smart. Like you try to trap him in something and next thing you know, you're the one stepping in a trap. Uh, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Oh my, we're gonna get him now. We're gonna get him now. And he says, give me a coin. Whose image is on it? Uh, Caesar's, hmm. All right, well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. By the way, who bears, the coin might bear Caesar's image, but whose image do you bear? Caesar can have the money. God has me. God has my heart. God has my life. Jesus is, oh, Jesus just, oh, snap. Here comes Jesus. You can't trap him in anything. He loved the down and outs. He loved the outsiders. He loved the least, the last, the lost. You know, he has, late, he has female disciples, shocking and outrageous. The Jews of the time said, don't, conf- don't have conversation with a woman unless you want to get in sin because women are yucky and women, women are the problem. Women, women led Adam. That was what the Jew, that's what they thought. And here comes Jesus. Raising, fraternizing with, validating Who financially supported Jesus? Rich women. Who was the first at the, at the resurrected tomb, or at the empty tomb when he was resurrected? It was Mary. Who didn't believe when she told him? The men. It's pretty interesting. So who does Jesus love, the rich or the poor? Be precise. Both. Who tended to like him more? The poor. I just, I, I, Jesus, just fascinating. Like, a lot of people try to deal with, with whether Christianity is true on an intellectual basis, looking for reasons to justify escape from a system of belief that loads them down with guilt. That was a lot in one sentence. Let me see if I can say that a better way. People need to deal with Jesus. Not with broad-stroked intellectual arguments, but the person of Jesus. And, and for Paul, here in Colossians 3, everything is Jesus. 
Jesus dealt with your sin when he died because he became fully one with you because he was in a love, he was, he's in a rescue mission to, 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 to bring you back home and make you God's child, to bring you into face-to-face fellowship with the God you've been cut off from. When you want not, wanted nothing to do with God, God sent Jesus. And when he died, you died. What died? The old man died. What old man? Well, there was a humanity that, that came about as a result of Adam. All humanity. We all are naturally selfish. And then in the resurrection of Jesus, God remakes the human race. And Jesus is the first. He's the firstborn of a new human race. And if you have union with him, there's an old you that belonged to the old human race. And there's a new you that belongs to the new human race. And it has everything to do with what Jesus did and nothing to do with what you did. You've been raised up and made brand new. The old person is gone and dead. Uh, isn't there a little nursery rhyme? Uh, it's raining, it's, it's pouring, the old man is... We can change it to dead. <laughs> That's so morbid. <laughs> I didn't even know that. That's crazy. Yeah, and uh, Ring Around the Rosie, wasn't that about like the Black Plague? Wow. The pocket full of posies was to mask the smell of the decomp. Well, how did we go there? <laughs> it's raining, it's, it's, it's raining, it's pouring. The old man is dead. Why? Because he died when Jesus died. But the new you that, that, that belongs to the whole new humanity that's actually right with God and has power. You're free of the guilt of your sin. God, as a judge, is not holding you guilty anymore. You're forgiven. The power of the resurrection is now yours. You don't have to sin anymore. You still can if you want to, by the way. (laughs) But why would you? Are you saying that Christians are sinless? I wish. I sure wish. If, If Christians were like sinless, like, We wouldn't need a New Testament, (laughs) y'all. None of the New Testament would have needed to be written. We would have needed like a one paragraph gospel and then the rest would have just been like autopilot. But he doesn't take control. He wants free people that grow up in relationship. Even Adam and Eve were not perfect in the beginning. They were innocent. Are we done? I feel like we're just about done. This is not a real sermon on Colossians 3. This is an introduction. Your past is dominated by what Jesus did in the past. Your present is dominated by the fact that he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then he says this, just just as he is hidden from view, the real you, Colossians 3, 4, the real you is hidden from view. But, But why would God tell me who I am in Christ? It just seems all like such a fiction. He says, I'm holy and blameless. Why am I depressed and tempted and filled with doubts? Do you understand the logic of what I'm saying? But if that's true, how come it doesn't seem true? How come it doesn't look true? How come it doesn't feel? Well, that's like saying Jesus is Lord and then you looking around the world and saying, well, if he's Lord, how come all this evil happens? Well, the evil happens because it's not his will that it happened, but we don't see the world submitted to his lordship yet. Just because the world doesn't, Submit to his lordship doesn't mean he's not the rightful Lord. And just because you 
have the freedom to live as though he's not your Lord doesn't mean he's not. You're called to live according to what you've now learned is the truth instead of how things seem. So he is Lord, exalted to the right hand of the Father, raised from the dead, King Christ, uh, King, the, the King in the lineage of David. I just love the theme that Kate has going on right now in the youth. It's now that you're saying it, I see it everywhere. Like, like Brian Connolly said, how crazy is it that David had a heart that pleased the Lord? He's the king after God's own heart. Saul wasn't. Saul was very impressive according to the flesh. David was a nobody from nowhere, but his heart pleased the Lord. And now God made a promise that, that, that there, will always, there will always be a man on David's throne forever and ever and ever. That's Jesus. So how crazy is it that, that David's savior has the son of David title in his name forever? What? That is, that is crazy. I'm done. I'm done. Your past, your present, and your future. When, when Christ is revealed, so he's, he's, dealt with, he's dealt with the power, the guilt, and the stain, and the shame of sin, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you don't have some upgrades in your thinking and living. No, in fact, the upgrades in your thinking and living have to be based on what he already did. We've talked about this before, right? I find that there's really spiritual, intellectually astute people, and, and I love their ideas. Oh, wow, those are such great ideas. Wow, that's so impressive. Man, I, maybe I wish I was smarter like them. I wish I would meditate as much as they do. I wish I was as clever as them. And then I find out that, you know, they died of alcoholism or they cheated on their wife or they, they were a serial pornographer or something like that. And I go, what? And what, and what I'm discovering is like what's missing, what's, what there is present is lots of spirituality. And what's missing is intimacy with Jesus, the grace of God, the love of God. It's the grace of God that changes you. It's the love of God that changes you. Not what you do for God, what he did for you, and then you absorbing it. I keep saying I'm done. Go ahead and stand. Yeah, this was just a preface. Let's do some repeat after me's, okay? Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Lord, I have you. Lord, I have you. Every hour I have you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. I died in you. I died to sin. I was raised in you. I'm raised to the right hand of the Father. The real me is with you. Help me think this way. I give you my life. I surrender. Amen. Amen, amen, amen.